Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Avalanche. Avalanche solves the biggest challenges facing Ethereum's developer and decentralized finance or DeFi community. That is velocity, security, and time to finality under three seconds on the first decentralized network resistance to 51% attacks. With complete support for the Ethereum virtual machine and all of the tools that have fueled DeFi's growth to date, including MetaMask, Web3.js, MyEtherWallet, Remix, and many more coming, Avalanche will be at parity with Ethereum for DeFi developers that want a much faster network without the scaling issues holding them back. Get started today building without limits on Avalanche by going to chat.avax.network. That is chat.avax.network. Thanks. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. Today's co-hosts are Dean and John, and our guest today is Carl Florsch. Been wanting to get you on the show, I think, since we started this thing, so I'm happy we finally did. And uh, let us uh, start off with the standard way. Tell us about yourself, who you are, what you do. Amazing. I am Carl Florsch. I uh, am working on fun things at Optimism. Um, before that, I was actually uh, uh, at Consensus for a little bit working on Ujo and then went from Consensus and Ujo on to uh, Ethereum Foundation working on Casper and the kind of early ETH2 uh, work. Um, and I confess that I got a little distracted with my ETH2 work and I ended up getting really involved in Plasma. Um, I was, I, I'm, I'm into quick fixes. And so I, uh, I uh, just wanted to get it, get right to that infinity scale. Um, and so worked on plasma, you know, a layer two scaling technology. Um, and then from plasma, uh, joined actually plasma group, which, um, uh, basically, you know, was working on a kind of generalized plasma framework and, you know, how do we actually get this, um, you know, layer two tech to be more general purpose. Um, and from there, we realized, oh, well, you know, uh, a, a really, really nice way to make it more general purpose is to, uh, you know, ditch plasma um, and and go to uh, roll up. Now, now, notably, plasma is still great. But but uh, that that was kind of the progression, and so we we re kind of uh, disbanded Plasma Group and kind of reformed as Optimism, um, and so yeah, that's been that's been my life for the past few years. Outside of that, pretty normal stuff. <laughs> cool. So, so uh, damn. Go ahead, John. You didn't have I any? Fit, I couldn't. You just had a blank stare. Um, yeah, my audio screwed up for a second, so I had to restart it again. Of course. All right. Uh, so, so I was thinking. Uh, so, I think the the main topic today is uh, likely to be optimistic rollups. Um, probably a good place to start is uh, for you to talk a little bit about uh, what rollups are in general and uh, maybe the backstory on the development up until now. Sure. Yeah. So the kind of concept general idea of a like rollup has been around for a very long time. Um, the kind of earliest tracings of uh, like optimistic rollup, for instance, was uh, post by Vitalik about um, shadow chains in 2015. But they've really been around for a long time. And in fact, the thing that has been probably the most uh, that is the most different from, you know, rollups today versus the kind of early thoughts about rollups um, before was I think that it is now more, much more common knowledge, the kind of uh, limits and um, capabilities of the different technologies. So there's there's essentially rollup and there's plasma, and these two are kind of the kind of uh, the opposite of each other in some sense. And and another way to say that is uh, rollups use on-chain transaction data, and plasma 
keeps all of those transactions off chain. So if a user were to use a plasma chain, they send a transaction to some, you know, some operator, some, you know, third party um, who is, you know, not necessarily an L1 miner. Um, and then that party will apply this transaction in some off-chain, uh, uh, you know, blockchain, and then post a commitment to what happened off-chain. Um, and by the way, there are new terms for things like this, like Validium, um, which is like the ZK rollup flavor of Plasma. These names are honestly so confusing. So it's really just like on-chain, that's rollup, off-chain, that's Plasma, or just say on-chain data availability, off-chain data availability. That's like the easiest. Um, and so the transaction doesn't go on-chain in Plasma or in off-chain data availability. But rollups, the transaction actually does go on-chain. And why is this actually useful? Well, to kind of like give an intuition, well, we want in layer two to create a blockchain within a blockchain in some sense, or really a state machine within a state machine. And we want this property that you don't have to sync the layer two state machine if you're just syncing the layer one state machine. But if you're syncing the layer one state machine, you want guarantees about this layer two state machine. So this layer two blockchain, I kind of use those a little interchangeably because they're because they're kind of similar. Um, now, the way that we actually generate the state in layer two is by downloading all of these transactions in a rollup. So rollup, we're posting all these transactions on chain. And if we're a layer one miner, we're just gonna run the layer one consensus algorithm, run the layer one trans, uh, state transition function, and we're good. However, if we're running a layer one and we want to sync the layer two chain, we will not only run this layer one algorithm, we will parse the layer one and pull out all of the layer two transactions, apply them to this separate state machine and sync that as well. And so that gives us a kind of layer one chain and a layer two chain. Um, and this is what gives a scale because if you are, uh, you know, you, you have the option of syncing layer one, syncing, you know, a, being a light client of layer one and syncing layer two, you, you can play with what the properties, the scalability properties are of the layer two. You can play with the trust assumptions of the layer two. Um, and it turns out that rollup is a, one of the most um, similar to the layer one in terms of the trust assumption. So that's first that that was the kind of like high level, you know, what we're trying to do with these layer one state machines, layer two state machines, how these kinds of things, uh, you know, you can kind of consider them. Um, but now for like how the the reason why rollup is a little bit different from plasma the reason like there's a fundamental limit in plasma so because we keep the transaction data off chain in plasma we have to introduce this availability challenge and that basically means that the state can be indeterminate for some period of time like one week um, and that means that the the programming model the kind of smart contract programming model is different fundamentally different in plasma um, than it is in rollup in the kind of worst case scenario. And so this is why we were like, okay, we need this like, we need transaction data to always be available. So we'll always post it on chain and we will, you know, um, sync the, 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 you know, the rollup chain and get approximately the same security guarantees as the layer one. Um, hopefully that made sense. There's a lot of information right there. So I remember looking about Plasma um, and there was a, a kind of a lack of fundamental requirements and constraints to like, uh, or I guess specification in general for, for Plasma. Uh, has that changed since we've moved this this concept over to Rollups? Like, is this a general framework that can be applied to any layer one blockchain under these specific constraints and circumstances? Or is it, or is it kind of married to Ethereum? Ah, uh can be applied to any layer one blockchain. Both rollups and Plasma are just fundamental properties of blockchain architecture. Um, and they definitely apply to all blockchains. And in fact, uh, many blockchains use rollups, but don't call them rollups. Um, there's <laughs> basically, uh, I, I've heard I've heard from, from near protocol to Polkadot, um, a bunch of people, the near people said that they were, that they're basically, you can consider their, you know, many shards as, um, you know, many roll up optimistic roll up chains. I mean, optimistic roll up chains. And, um, 
I, I, I've looked into, or I've heard people talk about the polka dot, um, you know, architecture and it's similarly, uh, many different optimistic roll-up chains. So it's, they're all very similar. Um, and really the similarity comes from the fact that because layer one in Ethereum has this like general purpose, um, you know, Turing complete, um, virtual machine, it allows us to build basically any construction on top of that. So like any way that we organize our state in layer two, we can do that on the layer one because it is general purpose. And that is the magic of, you know, Turing completeness and, and, you know, uh, machine simulation. So you're saying it's, it's a general framework of aggregating information with reasonable trust. Exactly. That's, that's exactly it. Uh, if we could just go back change the words roll up and change the word plasma to be something that had any any tie to what they actually mean and the fundamental properties of them but then the eth maxis couldn't shill it in three words on twitter Carl. <laughs> yeah. it's exactly. called merkel trees in smart contract <laughs> exactly Oh boy! All right, we're going to be using the recording that's in the in the uh, meeting here. That should be fine. I'll just do some post processing after that. Okay. So, sounds good. We are recording again, and we continue. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, like, um, I, I, what I worry about now. Uh, now that a few of these implementations have actually hit mainnet and people are using them, uh, the security involved with these things, like how can we be sure, uh, like how can a developer who wants to try and utilize these layer two solutions for scaling be confident that something isn't going to happen that just breaks the whole thing? Because this is really new. Like why should someone start to then develop using this technology that allows Ethereum to scale that is a great question. Um, and to be honest, uh, there are, there is, I don't have a perfect answer. Um, there are a number of places where these protocols can break. Um, so they can break in the kind of fundamental specification, right? Or they can break in the verification of that specification, aka the actual implementation. Does the implementation match the spec? Um, now, for the actual specification, um, the way that a developer can be sure, I mean, of course, they can read about the architecture. Um, more than likely, they will rely on the social signaling of people who um, have been established as being, you know, experts about these kinds of architectures and, you know, we'll kind of follow what other people say. And that's totally fine, assuming we do actually like, you know, provide good, uh, provide good, you know, um, like resources for people to look, you know, oh, this person mm -hmm. has evaluated this framework and, you know, this, this construction actually makes sense and follows the, you know, and provides these guarantees under these uh, security assumptions. And of course, uh, like security is only, um, in relation to a threat model. And so part of this process is going to be kind of figuring out what is a sensible threat model. And definitely even the experts really disagree about what a sensible threat model is for different constructions. And so it's not gonna be clear cut to figure out what construction makes sense. Um, I, on a whole, you know, rollups that you can um, at least get the guarantee that you can exit from the rollup um, without, uh, being censored, that is something that you, you would like. And by exit, I just mean go from the rollup into layer one. That's like a, that's something that you definitely want from your construction. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully the specification makes it very obvious why that property would, would, um, be preserved. Um, but then there's the implementation and that, that's a whole nother nightmare because there are so many places where these protocols can go wrong. In fact, Ethereum itself, you know, it was an insane project and it's a miracle that it actually was put together and didn't contain more bugs than it already had. Um, and so like this process, we are building like an Ethereum inside of Ethereum. And so of course it's going to be a very difficult uh, prospect to get right. Um, and then not only this, 
what happens when these protocols go wrong? Because how do you actually coordinate a migration on layer two when it's much more difficult to fork if you have layer one assets locked up in the layer two? You need to build upgradability into the layer one contracts to actually move over to the new chain that has a broken feature, which of course it will. Um, so this is like, it's a hairy mess when you get into the practicality of you know, implementing uh, these protocols without huge amounts of bugs and having a reasonable upgrade path. Where does that responsibility lie? Is that in, is that like, does that technical debt have to be absorbed by the developers who are building these things? Or is it, or does it, is it, is it adding extra responsibility and understanding to the end user? That is a great question. Um, so generally it has, it seems to be the case that end users will just kind of to, to an extent, blindly follow um, what developers put out. And then they kind of like what projects get some kind of social recognition as being relatively safe and secure. Um, and so in the end, I think that the the onus to a, for a to a large extent is actually on the DAP developer who is providing a, who is um, kind of using the layer two and ha and and kind of maintaining if they are maintaining or or suggesting i guess is really the word suggesting a particular bridge between the layer 1 and the layer 2 so one thing that we have been thinking about um is essentially you know uh the the you know when you deposit into a layer 2 one thing that you can do that's actually kind of that's helpful is you can deposit instead of depositing the actual the actual token you can deposit a wrapped version of your token or something like that. Um, and in that way, you can kind of get a little bit of safety, assuming your wrapped token itself has some upgrade that is sensible. Of course, if you are like, uh, you know, using a kind of more uh, pure uh, approach and you don't have some kind of, you know, upgrade mechanism on your smart contract, which I, you know, probably suggest, then you just have to be ready to like, quote, hard fork your smart contract and like migrate over to some other chain and point your front ends to some other, you know, balance set of balances if, in the worst case. Um, so these are just like things that DAP developers are going to be, you know, need to be aware of when they are migrating to layer two protocols. It's really interesting how much it, it still does kind of feel like the same thing all over again, but you've moved it up a layer the way that you, you know, you're talking about just having social consensus about, oh, crap, like this EVM inside the EVM turns out to be fundamentally broken. Let's just all go to this other EVM inside the EVM. Um, <laughs> but I, what I wanted to, I, I wanted to hear a bit more about what it is that that you guys are doing i think a good kind of like prereq for for this or like useful uh, um companion episode is the one with john adler from before i was here but helped me get up to speed on uh roll-ups uh and so my understanding is that they're doing something a, a bit simpler like their state transition is basically maybe like erc20 tokens only just like sending basically sending and receiving tokens um as you've alluded to, you guys are doing like a full-on EVM. Uh, what is what does that look like? How do, how do you actually go about implementing that, and what are some of the challenges there? Great question. So it is uh, first, it is a nightmare to implement these things, but but nonetheless, we we persevere and we try to find the simplest possible approach. So at a high level. Um, all of these rollups can have different quote state transition functions. The state transition function of L1 is the EVM state transition function. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to preserve the developer tooling and the, you know, state transition function of the EVM. And so, uh, we have been working on, uh, this thing called the quote OVM. And this is, you know, uh, the, uh, a set of smart contracts, interestingly. So, so the OVM, the name, right? It's really OEVM to an extent because it is an EVM that can be executed optimistically inside of an optimistic rollup. It technically can also be executed using Plasma, but that's way harder to implement. Um, and so uh, the way that it works is essentially we want, we create a small like 
sandbox, a kind of smart contract sandbox that has all of the different functionality that you'll see in the EVM from create, create to all the kinds of opcodes. But notably, we do not actually create a, it's not a machine level virtualization. Instead, this is an environment virtualization. So it's kind of the difference between, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, VMware, which is machine level virtualization, where you kind of actually execute, you write all the opcodes in Solidity, for instance, and you execute it there versus Docker, which instead just creates a kind of self-contained environment that runs on your bare metal. And so we, we, we said, okay, it's hard enough to build anything. We might as well do the thing that requires the least, you know, changes and, you know, not, you know, not build an EVM inside of the EVM. Instead, we can just create this like virtual environment. Um, and so kind of on a, on a low level, how that works is smart contracts, uh, the, the off chain, uh, uh, kind of chain, the off chain optimistic rollup you are able to interact with it almost as if it was like an Ethereum sidechain. So like, think of it as like a, like a Rinkeby testnet, right? It's not, it's not the same provider as L1, but it, you know, you can deploy contracts just the same. You can, you know, uh, commute, you can, you know, trade your balances just the same. Um, except it has one extra feature and that is, you know, L1 to L2 communication. So you can actually send a message from L, uh, L1 to L2 and you can send a message from L2 to L1. But that's essentially what it's doing. And we execute all of this off chain in a way that if it were to ever go wrong, if there were ever to be an invalid state transition that was you know, executed off chain, we could go back on chain and prove that particular state transition the, was invalid. Um, and the way we do that is, is kind of similar to the technology that's used in stateless clients. So we, we show the, we deploy all the contracts that were touched in that transaction, deploy the storage slots, you know, prove the storage slots, um, that were touched in that transaction, and then actually play that transaction on, on L1. And then we just get one, you know, one execution of a transaction that we can say, okay, does this match up with the, you know, what was posted or is it, is it fraudulent? Um, is what was posted fraudulent. Um, and this, this is basically to, to allow us to, um, kind of, I, I didn't really go into the difference between ZK rollup and optimistic rollup, but optimistic rollup, the way that the state transitions are, are, you know, the validity of the state transitions are preserved is through these fraud proofs. And so we have a fraud proof that executes a full, you know, EVM state transition function, um, and yeah, so that, that's at a high level what it does. And the, the goal is to keep the developer tooling of Ethereum because Ethereum developer tooling is horrible, but it's the best out there. <laughs> so so we, we just need to improve it. But I'm, I'm a, I, I love my little EVM contracts. <laughs> What's the cost of doing that? Um, the cost of leaving and proving it on chain? Uh, what does that scale with? Ah, so it scales with the number of, there's the number of contracts that are touched and the number of storage slots that are touched. Um, now, notably, we don't, it, it does not scale with the state of the off-chain system. And so as long as there is, you know, a, an upper bound on the, you know, number of contracts that you can touch and the size of those contracts, as well as the number of storage slots and the size of those storage slots, then you can establish an upper bound on the actual fraud proof itself. Um, now the, uh, the fraud proof will, uh, in it, if it is proved invalid, there is, you know, uh, of course there is some cost to this. And so you mm -hmm. definitely need a bond to be posted when you actually submit one of these state, you know, many of these state routes and you submit something invalid, there must be some kind of, you know, punishment to the party that submitted the invalid state route. And so that punishment, you know, some portion of that, uh, is, is, um, actually sent to the person who proved the fraud and hopefully covers the cost of the actual fraud proof. Is there any, is there any worry about, um, like the overall economics of something like this, where the cost of proving a fraud is too high to click really do so because it's, mm. it, it, no, it's not worth it. Yes. And in fact, that is one of the big reasons why, um, 
a uh kind of small optimistic roll-up chain is a little bit more dangerous than a kind of big optimistic roll-up chain. It's, it's, it's very, it's interesting in this way. So the, um, if you have a kind of chain that no one cares about, then you have fewer people checking to, you know, syncing, synchronizing that chain. So there are fewer people who can actually detect fraud in the first place. You know, if, if no one really cares to sync it, then clearly a fr fraud will just get through without, without thinking about it. And then the second thing is if there is not that much value, you know, to be lost or if, if a disruption in service is not actually, you know, worth it to anyone, then yeah, there's a, there's a possibility that, you know, spending, you know, a few hundred dollars on, on a fraud proof or more is, is not even going to be worth it. Um, and so this is like, uh, there is actually some economies of scale for these, for these chains for sure. That so, makes sense to try and go ahead, John. Sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, is probably a stupid idea, but have you considered like having the bond paid in gas tokens so that it kind of mm. like flows with the the network congestion? Exactly. Exactly. So we definitely have. In fact, there are. We need to generally rate limit the transaction submission to these chains, and so one interesting way to rate limit is actually, you know charge some kind of, you know, some kind of fee in some sense, you know, like burns, burn some amount of, of value, um, kind of, and that burn could just be like buying gas token that is distributed to the person who, um, proves the fraud. Um, so, so, so you can even like establish a kind of like reserve of all of the gas token that is like, um, held. And then the, the, bond can just be in you know gas token and pay pay the person back so yes this is this is a great uh it's honestly a hilarious but it's a little funky but it's pretty cool um it, yeah we're getting into like i feel like that's like navel gazing mechanism design go, <laughs> go ahead cory i was gonna say like since you said there are uh somewhat kind of like econ economies of scale associated with this i think i'm trying to like prognosticate of the future of what the state of the Ethereum ecosystem looks like um, and how you almost have like emergent, emer like emergent communities across different level layer twos and why they would be on the same one. Cause it, it seems to like be worthwhile to have communities of people uh, working on a specific layer two together because they have like a kind of a unified goal and it, it grows a lot of like kind of the, the, the reasoning behind you just said you want there to be more people and more values that you, it's it's there are enough people watching there's enough value associated there's, there's commerce alongside uh and then but like why doesn't it just all coalesce into a single layer two why would like what what's 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 the purpose of having multiple of them if you need economies of scale and something like this I think that there is incentive for there to be multiple layer twos. Um, there's like, um, you know, oh, whose tech are you using, right? There's like, me there's, there's many blockchains for the same reason. However, I think it will result in some kind of power law distribution where you do end up having kind of dominant layer two chains that most of the value floods to. Um, and notably, this is not because of a kind of fundamental necessity for value to be to kind of coalesce on the same quote state machine or same chain. It's actually more an issue because developer tooling and like asynchronous communication and a kind of like network of blockchains is just so much more technically difficult to achieve in the next year, two years, three years, maybe that it do, it's not like practical for a developer to to kind of build composable applications across many different uh you know blockchain environments um and so this is like so when i say it will coalesce into like one chain there is a possible future where things kind of spread out a little bit more because asynchronous communication and smart contracts and the kind of programming abstractions that we work at do more, you know, intelligent load balancing across um, blockchains with similar security uh, constraints. And so that's like possible, but it is uh, hard. And so everything is just, it's more about practicality. It's not about feasibility. 
so yeah what what does that look like do you do you think that you might have like two or three roll up contracts and you get like defi on one of them and, and games on another i dows on another like the ones that want to be co-located in the same way that all the shoe stores like to be in the same area in <laughs> in new york or something uh and then so that's that's one and then two is like how how do is there some form of you, you mentioned asynchronous communication that that you can you can bake up to to let them talk to each other between different uh, roll-ups yeah I, I i think that it's not crazy to think that there will be like like services um in in the same environment that definitely seems reasonable there might be multiple DeFi, you know chains or many many forks of the same DeFi products across multiple chains and like it's it's more about like where is the value right now um and so that's like th those are all possibilities um there are definitely um uh, it is definitely possible to do asynchronous communication across um roll-ups um and in fact you can have uh you can even build kind of roll-up chains that um uh, facilitate that asynchronous communication a little bit more, but they, they, uh, okay. So, so ZK rollups, it's actually a little bit easier to do asynchronous communication across chains because that asynchronous communication, you know, that it is valid the moment that it is posted. So like when you post a new, new, you know, ZK rollup state route, and I didn't explain this, I apologize. There's optimistic and ZK rollup. Uh, ZK rollup, you're proving upfront all of the state transitions instead of relying on this fraud proof. Now the fraud proof is great because it gives us you know, the EVM, but it's bad because it uh, re requires a challenge period. Um, and that challenge period is like a week. So if you want to send a message from optimistic rollup to layer one, an asynchronous message, you can do it, but you have to wait a week. Um, or, I mean, you can technically wait less time, but the less time you wait, the less secure your message. Um, and so I just, you know, suggest a week. Um, and that's based on kind of how much <laughs> Ethereum has been DOSed before. It's been DOSed for three days. And then, you know, you multiply that by two and add a day. And that's, you know, that's your asynchronous communication. That's your timeout. Um, and that's from Barry Whitehead, by the way. That's, that, that's a great, great little one. Um, but ZK rollup. Um, you prove the state transition up front, which means that a, a message from one ZK rollup chain to another ZK rollup chain can theoretically happen, you know, the moment it's they're posted to layer one. Um, now, the the uh, that means that that does imply that ZK that the second ZK rollup chain kind of introspects some information about the first one that you're sending the message to, kind of like crosslinks in eth2 and in fact these are um you know very similar concepts and so just like there are going to be you know many there's many shards there's also uh you know many rollups and these rollups can communicate through crosslinks and the moment they are finalized the communication can go through um and they in fact they're they're very similar um in in how how to how you reason about them um so yes asynchronous communication is very possible um and, and so just, just you said like, you know, if you have optimistic rollups, you have to wait for the, the fraud proof, the, pro the proving time. That makes sense. Is that, is that like delay hard coded so that, you know, like my rollup in, in contract zero X ABC has to be like, no, like different rollups and where it might be coming from and be like, oh, we need to wait a week for that one. Uh, like that. In fact, in fact, it is not hard coded. Um, it is uh, solely up to the layer one contract that is kind of executing the withdrawal to determine the delay period of the you know underlying rollup. Now, you can have it so that uh, uh, there are w there are probably there are ways to to kind of um, not. To, to make it not uh, configurable. Like you can design a rollup that kind of like locks these things down. And so there are probably there are ways to like mess around with this, but like in a well-designed rollup, um, you, you, the layer one contracts can determine. So if they think if you're for your application, you're like, oh, I only want to wait a day. You know, you can, you can just wait a day. In fact, hilariously, you can also do weird things like, oh, I, I want to trust everything that comes from this rollup 
Um, I can trust it immediately if I get this, you know, uh, get five signatures from the five people I trust. Um, then I'll, you know, mint the asset immediately and consider it finalized. Um, and, and that can be a totally, that doesn't have to do with the rollup. It's just like a totally separate, um, you know, multi-sig that people are, that people are signing off on. Or, you know, you can, you can, you know, tokenize these, these, uh, uh, you know, kind of instant exits. It's, it gets crazy. Um, Right, right. So the delay is in the, the original contract itself. That makes exactly. sense. How does the user know these things going into going into a given application? Like you said, like they kind of just have to trust that whatever application they're using um, made the right decisions based on their security or at least or at least informs them on all these things. But like based on what you just said, there's a tremendous uh, broad range of options that may eventually be applied to all these different uh roll-up instantiations. How, how are you going to navigate this? That is a great question. Um, and in fact, um, my method, my like mental, my, my approach, my personal approach, and this even when I talk to people, I very much respect, like I, I, they may have different opinions, but I am all for like maximally giving power to developers. Like, I don't care that I, I know that like in, in practice, these kinds of things are going to become unbelievably confusing. Potentially, there's like a potential for it to be just absolutely horribly confusing. You deposit ETH into a layer two that has a withdrawal period of five days. And then you deposit ETH into a deposit contract that has a withdrawal period of one day. And now on that chain, you can't think that those ETH, those two different types of ETH are fungible because one has a different security assumption than the other. Um, and so it's, kind of insane. Um, but I kind of dig it. And I think that the, the kind of real person to answer this question is going to be like the, you know, amazing, uh, UX designers, like, you know, Khalil from Uniswap or something that, that, uh, uh, comes up with a way to organize this information in a, uh, digestible, you know, manner. And like, this is not just a problem that is like, new to the space by any means, right? Like the fact that we sign these MetaMask transactions and oftentimes, you know, in the early days, we had no idea what we were signing. Like not even in, it wouldn't even tell us it was an ERC-20 transfer. It was just like, oh yeah, I'm signing A, you know, ABC123. And it's ridiculous. And you're just totally trusting the front end. And so like, I think that one thing that people may need to get more accustomed to is that using a DAP is not just about trusting their front end. I mean, not about just about trusting their smart contracts. It's about trusting their front end. Um, and front ends are really, really in control. Um, I am, I, I would say that I feel pretty confident in my ability to like read, you know, transaction data, raw transaction data. But I am very confident also that I could be fooled into signing a bad transaction that does not express my intent. Um, and so I don't think that there's really any way to get around it. Now, like a question of like block explorers, like, you know, Etherscan is going to have to figure out how do we display this information in a consumable way and dApps themselves. How do we explain this information? But to an extent, we have some early examples. DYDX is an early example of a project that you go to their, their, their website, you deposit into some thing that you don't really understand, and then you start signing meta transactions um, that you know, affect the state of a, of a, of a you know, state machine that is you know, uh, kind of a little bit less standard. Um, and so it may look something along those lines. And I, I, I have faith. I'll agree with you at least that um, optionality for developers is good. Uh, that way, like, hopefully, I mean, in, in the end, you hope that good good developers understand their users, and then and then accommodate the uh, available tech to their users. And the more options they have, the better they're able to do that. So, like, optionality in this gives them the ultimate um, availability to cater to whatever use case they're trying to solve not having that forces them to kind of pigeonhole themselves into what's available. And I think that's kind of like a hallmark of Ethereum in the first place is, you know, build, build appropriately to what you're trying to do. Uh, but shit, that's a lot of stuff. I'm trying to like, <laughs> as a company, like working for a company that tries to solve this problem 
of providing an interface to Ethereum, like my mind is is racing in terms of the complexity the complexities involved of how this landscape is evolving, as well as like associating risk and then relaying that to the user. Yeah, terrifying. Ter- these early these early experiments with layer two are going to be very weird, very interesting. Like hacks, you know, broken front ends. Uh, you, just total confusion about what is what um, on the side of you know the users, it's and developers to be honest, uh, it's it's going to be a nightmare, but it's going to be a fun one, and we we definitely need it. We need to go through those growing pains. Um, there's only one way to learn. Yeah. Dean, what are you worried about? You're staring at me this whole time. Layer two, yeah, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm like, I like the idea of layer two, but every complexity which sharding brings layer two makes even worse because it's like sharding, at least everything is essentially part of one network. You kind of know where and how to find stuff with, with all these layer two things. How do I find all this shit? Like, how does, just how does my application, like, if I build a front end for this, how does my application know what nodes to connect to? It's going to be horribly annoying, and I don't see anyone working on standards towards, like, how to do that. So I think it's kind of important to establish those as well. Doesn't ENS just solve all of this, Dean? I mean, ideally, but I don't... <laughs> I don't. <laughs> You could probably solve it with ENS, right? Like you could buy the domain for your network and then encode that, but then it's also like authoritative, like whoever owns the contract owns the network. It just brings all these other complexities beyond that. Yeah, but in the other sense, like the whole concept of like, I don't need a permanent record for my donut purchase. Like, Layer twos give you give you context to operate within a smaller subset of people than the like the, the global state, and sure, then and then sub- you're trusting you're, you're rooting yourself in a, in a larger trust, which I think is the main goal here. That is fair, but that smaller subset of people needs to find that context. Yeah, and that's up to the developers and marketing and so on and so forth to be able to advertise that and, 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 and provide it appropriately. Like, like, like it's, it's, this is, I think just the way the world works. Like you're going to have subsets of people that want to do a specific thing and they don't need access to the inefficiencies of like global consensus in order to do that. But they would like some type of trustless route so that they can operate with, uh, I guess, it will operate in a more trustless environment than what they traditionally have to now. And, and, and the ability to kind of have liquidity across the entire network while operating in these smaller subsets of people. I mean, think about the, the situation of like the, I don't know, that's almost like what I used to argue with uh, when Plasma was becoming a thing and how I kind of imagined this entire space growing. And that is uh, the, same, like the analogy of the way the internet grew uh, with respect to corporations. It was mostly just lands, right? You had you had a land, and then companies were very skeptical to join the internet because it was a gross, seedy place for the longest time. So what did they do? They built their own internet, just an internal corp- corporate internet, or just a land. Eventually, they found a way to establish a secure link to the global internet so they can actually talk to each other as corporations. And then the internet just grew and grew and grew and grew because like you said, standards grew, you have better safety protocols, so on and so forth. And uh, the, the best practices of being a proper citizen of the internet got a little better, but it's not like lands went away. Everyone has a land. Your router provides you a land in your house and yeah. you still have these things, but you just understand where the gatekeepers need to be. And layer twos are, are exactly what that are, what that, what that is in my opinion. They're, they're the, the lands of today's internet where the open permissionless networks like Ethereum are the internet. And you just need to understand where the gatekeepers are and what the context is for how value and communication flows through them. And I don't, I don't see that changing at all. It's just now we're dealing with value. Is there any reason to believe any of that's wrong, Carl? <laughs> I really loved it. 
I really loved it. Um, the entire concept around like standards and coming up with like what is what does security really mean and establishing that, right? We have um, uh, we have a a momentous amount of work to do um, to establish what a secure blockchain really means and like what we can accept from a secure blockchain and how do we establish those secure um, kind of portals between these different different domains. In fact, by the way, uh, I was I was asking asking Vitalik about like, what's a word that encompasses a shard and a roll up and a plasma and, you know, all these different kind of state spaces. And, you know, a, a good what he suggested was domain. Um, and I feel like that's like very, very reasonable. Like these are all kind of different, different domains in the same, you know, in the same blockchain in Ethereum that should all have pretty similar security um, uh, constraints. And the moment that you break some, some, you know, security assumptions, we just have to like prune those prune those networks and just basically say, okay, you know, we only accept a certain, you know, a certain standard. Um, and I, and I do think that we will eventually figure that out and it's not going to be, it's going to be a messy process. Just, just kind of, as you described, Corey, like not, it's not one person saying this is the internet. It's just a kind of emergent, um, you know, encompassing of many domains. And yeah. as it stands today, uh, a lot of it's going to be gross. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, there is uh, too much Ponzi activity on Ethereum for uh, anyone to be uh, entirely comfortable with, in my opinion. Is there still that many Ponzi's other than DeFi? <laughs> uh, DeFi is a good example, um, but the uh, there are many. Yeah, if you look at the top gas is there. Um, but Hex is not Ethereum, is it? Yeah, it's an ERC twenty. Mm -hmm. Oh damn! I thought and, they launched their like Bitcoin fork thing. No, nah, it's just a it's a it's a proof of Bitcoin ownership at a certain date that mints more Hex that goes to Richard Hart. Yeah. So Ponzi's shall not be named. Do not invest in Ponzi's. Um. <laughs> So uh, one thing that like I hear when we talk about all these different layer twos and um, the, the like, levels of abstraction building on Ethereum, I start to, to think that perhaps it's going to be too top heavy. Like, like how much can we secure, how, how many tokens can we secure with one underlying token? I think we just you know, recently have started to transact more like like recently the volume of um erc20 transactions is has surpassed eth transactions or or eth issuance so probably issuance so you know it gets to be like if we really really get past that it, it doesn't take you setting up a lot of transactions to make it easily profitable to uh to do some double spends and some some mm. evil, uh, you know, hash power manipulation attacks, like like, and, and so especially, I guess, like there's there's like a phrasing that has been used, I've seen used with um, uh, rollups, which is like, you know, you get the same guarantee security guarantees, like you inherit the security guarantees of layer one in your layer two, and I'm like, well, can you just copy and paste this the security of this proof of work chain and double it. Like that <laughs> sounds like free security to me. Um, and so I'm curious what you might have to say about that. That is such a good point. Oh my goodness. Uh, the little talked about problem with all of this is the parasitic L2 problem. Um, <laughs> because um, layer one is uh, of course you know secured by main chain ethereum right you know all all, it, all these miners they make a bunch of money now one thing that scales with um the value on the network is mev or minor minor extractable value the more value on a network the more money you have to gain to you know when you arbitrage different you know coins or you know arbitrage uniswap against something else or you know there's just free money on the network and we see this all the time with front runners front runners are like some of the top gas guzzlers on ethereum um now this mev 
when we start building these layer two protocols actually moves into layer two because the, you know, the value that you can extract from front running and from like, you know, being first in line is actually going to be extracted by the layer two miners, not the layer one miners, which, okay, yes, the layer twos are committing a bunch of data to layer one, posting this, these transactions, et cetera. But a massive amount of their, uh, you know, of the layer one value comes from the fact that a miner has the unilateral opportunity to front run. Um, now, what does this mean for layer one when nothing is going on of interest in layer one outside of just being basically a kind of big data dump of, you know, transactions? Um, and especially in ETH2, where you end up scaling up how much data you can dump. And that, of course, because of the supply increase, will <laughs> reduce the price. Um, so we have this weird problem where money is going to be extracted at the edges, the MEV is extracted at the edges of the network, and the inside of the network is going to grow and reduce the price of, you know, the those like, uh, you know, roll-ups posting, uh, you know, transactions to layer one. So if everything is using, if we're all using roll-ups, which it seems very possible that, you know, Ethereum becomes just, you know, a hub for many different roll-ups and plasmas and whatnot, how are we going to be confident that the L1 miners are actually making enough money? Um, so this is, this is like, you know, a crazy, you know, question and who knows? Um, I think that there, there are, uh, you know, ideally, you know, proof of stake, you know, there's this like social layer that kind of kicks in that, you know, it's like a too big to fail argument. That's one thing that I honestly like, even, you know, for, for what it's worth, I don't know if too big to fail has great connotations, but nonetheless, like if the main chain Ethereum has some kind of big dispute over what is valid, like the social layer figuring it out is, you know, uh, it's better to have one big failure that everyone like we need to figure out tomorrow or everything's going to stop versus like intermittent failures across, you know, you know, oh, last month this guy failed. Oh, this month that guy failed. Like, you know, the, the, the overall reliability, you know, uh, uh, I would I would be more concerned about. So these are it, it is an open question, though. And my arguments for, you know, why the parasitic L2 problem is, uh, uh, you know, a problem uh yeah, I, I I can't convince you that it's not going to be a problem because it's it's a little it's a little concerning. Now, one thing you can do, and one thing that we are are thinking about and planning on doing, um, is actually trying to design mechanisms to extract this MEV from the layer two miners. Um, so this is this is a kind of tan like a tangent to to layer two, but it gives us a chance to redesign mining incentives. Um, and so one of these ways to redesign it is, is introduce something called MIVA, Minor Extractable Value Auctions. Um, and the long story short, it's this interesting mechanism for auctioning off this MEV. Um, and so one possibility, um, and by the way, the reason why you want to auction off this MEV is because you take it away from the layer two miners who are, you know, questionably securing the network. Like who knows if that's really, it's really worth it to pay them that much money. Um, you now have a pot of money that you can use for something. Um, and that pot of money could is is a perfect, the, the way to use it, really, the only reasonable way to use it is for funding public goods and solving tragedy of the commons. And right now, security is massively overfunded. I think that that's like pretty clear. In the future where we move to ETH2 and a bunch of rollups, it might be underfunded. Um, but then hopefully we have like social uh, coordination similar to, you know, the, the social coordinations of taxes and government that kind of push money back into the center layer and like provide money to secure the network. Um, now, it's a little crazy of a future, but that's just one picture of it. I'd like to push back a little bit. Um, uh, if if that value flows to the edges as we potentially move into an ecosystem where most people are operating on layer twos because it's more economically feasible for them to do so. And then the MEV like moves in that direction and the, and in the associated value and prices of layer one drop significantly. That's a market the, the the functionality of layer one isn't going anywhere. And eventually those use cases come back to layer one. Um, and so like there's, there's no reason to believe that, People won't just use layer one whenever it's uh, the costly, like 
it's beneficial for them to do so. Uh, and maybe it's an issue with kind of how an application is built, if it has that functionality, or if you want to play that market on intermittent access for certain types of use cases. But once again, like that's not necessarily a bad thing because oh, after all, like the underlying like fundamental value is in digital scarcity. And when you introduce layer twos into this type of thing, it's not like you're like the, the, the digital scarcity isn't growing or shrinking like differently. It's just being moved and distributed across different things with different constraints on how it gets moved. And so like there's still value in the scarcity because the scarcity doesn't really change. It's just how it gets used is, is there's more options and more, I guess, kind of constraints and how it's moved. So like, I think that's not too big of an issue if things get cheaper over a certain period of time because the functionality isn't going away, it's only getting expanded. People are gonna find a way to use it. And and if it if it solves the front running and, and, and back running, which is a arguably more difficult issue, um, then good because like the base layer needs to be efficient. And if we can move some of that kind of behavior from market players to do certain things in certain types of situations to an off layer situation, things situations too many times, that's a good thing. And we can deal with the consequences there. Uh, so I, I'm all for that. Because like, once again, like functionality isn't going away. Layer one's still gonna be able to do all the things, but then you have extra options to do them elsewhere if it's too expensive to do it on layer one. And one one uh, like interesting note is that in fact, this problem is not 100%, the problem of MEV reduction is actually not 100% um, tied to layer twos. In, in other words, you can actually reduce MEV significantly using smart contract designs on layer one, sig just only on layer one. And probably the most significant is if we get to a future where most transactions are shielded, blinded, you know, you, you, you know, miners don't know what the contents of those transactions are, then it gets to the point where you, you know, it, it's not really as valuable to be a miner in those cases. And so even, and by the way, even in the kind of MEV auctions, you know, model, there are ways to take away the MEV from the auction because they're just generally ways to reduce MEV. Um, and so, yeah, it, it will be an interesting, interesting future. And I totally agree with your point that like people will go where the cheap, where the transactions are cheap, hundred um, percent. Well, I think that what you just brought up is an entirely new episode. So uh, <laughs> it, might be, it might be best to, to, to start to wrap up here. Are there, is there any question that you wish we would have asked that we didn't? Hmm. I guess the probably the biggest thing that I want to learn, and maybe this is not a question. Uh, this is a question for your for your audience to an extent. Is like, um, actually, I honestly I don't have a question. I tried really hard. I tried really really <laughs> hard there. It just didn't come. I thought you asked great questions, um, you know, and I had a great time. So I'm very grateful for for the whole thing. <laughs> All right. So then well, I appreciate that. Where do people go to find out more about uh, Optimism and, and yourself? Um, so Optimism.io is our very, you know, <laughs> shoddy little website that we that we don't give enough love to. Um, and our docs are also similarly shoddy. But our GitHub repository is very active. We try really hard on that guy. Um, so, you know, Optimism, Optimism on GitHub, um, also on Twitter, um, Optimism PBC, and, and I am Carl.tech. You can go to my website. I'll post more blog posts when I finish this darn project and we, uh, you know, improve the scalability on Ethereum. So. Thanks a lot. Had a good time. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Carl.